This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for March 1st. Canadians remember Brian Mulroney, one of Canada's most consequential prime ministers. We'll hear from former Prime Minister Kim Campbell, who served in Mulroney's cabinet. Plus, it was a jam-packed week on Parliament Hill. How did the government fare through all of the big news events? The Power Panel debates that. And the federal government extends a program that funds hundreds of local journalism jobs. We'll talk to the Minister of Canadian Heritage about the state of the industry. In Ottawa today, as Canadians of all stripes pay tribute to the Right Honourable Brian Mulroney. Mulroney served as the country's 18th Prime Minister, known for leading the Progressive Conservative Party to the largest electoral victory in the country's history. Kim Campbell will go on to succeed Mulroney as Prime Minister, but first she served in Mulroney's cabinet, including as Minister of Justice and Minister of National Defence. Kim Campbell, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. I wonder if we could just start with what your reaction was when you heard the news that Brian Mulroney had passed away. Well, I was I was surprised um, and sad, and particularly when I read that he had gone to Florida to help recuperate from treatment for his heart and prostate cancer issues, and then has suffered a fall. And that just seemed to me kind of a, a cruel a cruel thing that just when he was, should have been um, on the mend and uh, getting over some other illnesses that he would have this 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 bad ending. So I'm I'm sad, but um, you know he's, he's had a remarkable and consequential life. So it's been interesting to see people taking stock of it, and uh, I think giving it its due. He was a remarkable person and a remarkable prime minister, and I'm glad that he lived long enough for the time to pass for people to uh, do justice to his political legacy. Because when you do a lot of big things in government, um, people often, you know, you often make a lot of people mad, and it takes them a while to realize that maybe the things you did were important to do. Well, let's just talk a little bit about that, because some of the things he did, he has his legacy of big swings with big hits on things like free trade, but also big swings with big misses for things like Meech and Charlottetown. So how do you think his legacy is going to be remembered? Because as you say, he was a prime minister who wanted to do big things. Well, I think his legacy is very strong. He didn't bat a thousand. He didn't get them all. But I don't think any of the things that he wanted to do were motivated by anything but a desire to make Canada better. There was nothing that he wanted to do in a mean-spirited way to uh, hurt anybody or anything. If, if, if anything, he had a vision for the country, and he was hoping uh, that he could help to uh, restore some sense of, of comity between English and French Canada and the Meech Lake Accord and then Charlottetown were ways of trying to do that. Now, they weren't successful, but I think they were well-motivated. Um, they were painful. But things like the free trade agreement, you know, as I've mentioned to, to some other people, what's interesting about Brian Mulroney was his willingness to rethink things and learn new things and change his mind. And like many people, um, he, you know, spent much of his early life thinking that free trade between Canada and the United States would be a non-starter because the U.S. was so much bigger and wouldn't we get rolled over. Although, in fact, free trade agreements between big and small countries often tend to benefit the small country more. 
But when the McDonald Royal Commission reported out in, in uh, 1985, he saw their recommendation that we should perhaps take the leap of faith and enter into negotiations for a free trade agreement with the United States. He was prepared to take it seriously. He, you know, he, he didn't say, oh, no, that can't happen. And, you know, I think this, he said, you know, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's more to this. And Maybe we should do it. And he did it. And I think that that was very admirable because I think it was important. And of course, it was divisive for the same reason that he was a knee jerk, you know, oh, couldn't happen. It would be a disaster until he was able to look into it in a more informed way. You talk about free trade and how divisive that election was and then how much that's changed, how much the country rallied to defend the free trade agreement when Donald Trump as president tried to tear it up and how Brian Mulroney was brought in to advise Prime Minister Trudeau on that. It just shows how much the assessment of his big swings changed over the years. I think that has to be one of the things that was the great consolation, aside from his loving family and his wonderful kids, one of the great consolations of his post-political life was to see the value of things that he had done and fought for politically and taken, you know, been beaten up about and taken a lot of hits for, becoming established uh, lore in Canada and accepted uh, and, and admired. And, but I think it's a very good example of the fact that, that it's hard for governments to do tough things. And I think about, you know, where we're dealing with climate change. I mean, you're talking about something that keeps you awake at night. I mean, and Brian Mulroney had a, a very good record on environmental issues, one of the, the, the leaders in that area. But those are often very difficult issues to tackle. And yet, once they're done, you realize, you know, we had to do this. But there were a lot of things that... Um, that a combination of his skills, but I think also particularly his willingness to consider things that he hadn't always thought about. You know, he didn't come into office fully formed with an agenda of what he was going to do. There were priorities. He wanted to deal with the Quebec issue, uh, but free trade wasn't part of that. He wanted to create a strong Canadian economy, but it wasn't until he was in office and the McDonald Commission reported that he realized that this might be a piece of the puzzle that would help to secure you know, Canadian economic prosperity. So he was open-minded and respectful of good arguments, well, uh, evidence-based uh, perspectives and, and, and proposals that, that he could then, uh, as the leader of a government, help to bring into fruition. So it was quite um, delightful to, to serve in his government because you, you sat around a table with people who respected evidence, who, uh, who wanted to do good things with the country, and we weren't we weren't blind to the political dangers of things. I remember at one meeting, one of my colleagues saying, with, with respect to the GST, you know, who is on our side on this issue? It was, well, everybody's on our side on the issue, except for that the, the, the business community wanted us to get the bill passed because they were already repricing their catalogs and needed it to come into force. But, you know, there's a lot of good things that you do where, you know, it's only after you take the heat and do it that everybody lines up and say, well, that was a good thing. And I'm, you know, I'm glad you did that. And, you know, I was always on the side, you know, just quietly. Well, there's a lesson in there to be pragmatic and not be too ideological when you're in a position of leadership, right? Because circumstances will change, and if you don't change with them, you stop evolving, and the country stops moving forward. So I just wonder, Ms. Campbell, when you succeeded him as leader and as prime minister, did he give you any advice? Did he say anything to you about how to approach the job and give you pointers on, on what it would be like? Well, and generally not. More, more kind of the mechanical things of, you know, you know, the residences and all of that kind of stuff. Um, 
No, he didn't. And, um, and you know, I'm in a way I could have used some more pointers and help. Uh, but it was a very difficult time because he left office as the most unpopular prime minister in the history of Canadian polling. And, you know, the Bloc Québécois had, you know, run off with a lot of our Quebec vote with Lucien Bouchard. And I was glad to see that Lucien Bouchard says that they actually reconciled last week and had dinner together. And he was bemoaning the fact that so many years had been wasted. But that was a very painful, difficult time that not only did Brian Mulroney feel that his friendship had been betrayed, but that <laughs> that also Lucien had run off with a lot of our vote. You know, plus the fact of uh, people in the West, you know, voting for uh, the Reform Party, which could never form a government. So it was it was a difficult time. It was a hard, it, you know, the, the mathematical uh, voter calculus didn't didn't really uh, add up. But I think that, one, but also he was he, he was very unpopular. And again, I think he understood that if I were to say, <clears throat> he would always <clears throat> answer a question if I had one. <clears throat> Thank you, pardon. But. I think he also understood that it would not be a positive for me if people thought that I was just, you know, taking dictation from Brian Mulroney. I had to be my own person, but it would have been nice to have had more time <laughs> to be my own person. But, um, but I think later, as <clears throat> the years went by and people began to understand that he had a wealth of knowledge, they had a wealth of, of personal contacts uh, in the United States, but elsewhere around the world, and that he had... Um, a large reservoir of respect as a result of this positions he'd taken, for example, on uh, on apartheid, uh, that there were a lot of people around the world who respected him and that he could be helpful to other governments of Canada, irrespective of their partisanship, um, if they needed his help. And he was always willing to give it. And I think that's that's what we really mean by an elder statesman, somebody who moves beyond partisanship and takes the resources that they've gained and the knowledge that they've gained and tries to always be there uh, if needed. And, uh, and so I think he was. But um, it's, as I say, it's, it was a remarkable life, but there, you know, you can't sort of sum it up in 25 words or less. But I think that it's, I'm happy that, he, as I say, he lived long enough to see fairer considerations of what he had done. Brian can take great, uh, could take great pride in the enduring uh, legacy that he created uh, in Canada, and it was one that was designed to bring us together. It was not a legacy of division, um, even though some people disliked him and, and, and felt divided. But the fact is that that was never what he was about. And, um, and so it's, it's a, a historic time. And, you know, I'm sorry he didn't get a few more years. I'm sorry that a fall has, you know, intervened into what I hoped would be a, a process of recuperation and maybe uh, some more opportunities to participate in uh, in the world that he loves so much but um, but I think as as Canadians we should we should be pleased and even you know I think of how unpopular Pierre Elliott Trudeau was when he left office the same kind of you know people just hated him I mean he was really just like and then as the years went by and people began to realize hmm patriot in the conversation that was harder than it looked and you know maybe that was a good thing and you know that there were a lot of things that that you know people said hmm you know this man really did make it make a, an important contribution so you know you just have to live long enough and let let the dust settle and let people see um, the consequences of of your vision and I think Brian had a vision. I think he led a very consequential life. And I'm just sorry that, uh, that he didn't have more years to enjoy his, uh, his adorable grandchildren.
Former Prime Minister Kim Campbell, thank you so much for speaking with me today. You know, it's been a jam-packed political week here on Parliament Hill. From the introduction of the online harms bill to the release of documents linked to the firing of two scientists believed to have worked for China. Some issues the government planned to deal with, others, not so much. Everyone in our country will get free diabetes medication. This is about health equity. It's also about affordability. This bill will require platforms to do their part and to do better to keep people safe from harm and exploitation, especially our children. So you're investigating ArriveCan? Yeah. Well, not ArriveCan itself. We're investigating the totality. The documents, Mr. Speaker, reveal a shocking disregard for Canada's national security. The relationships that they had uh, included concerns that, that there may be connection to their involvement with, uh, with, with, with China. Okay, so that's a lot. Uh, how did the government fare through all of these events? We're going to talk about that with the Friday Power Panel. Shachi Curl is the president of the Angus Reid Institute. Kelly Kreiderman is with The Globe and Mail. And here with me in studio, journalist and author Paul Wells and Susan Delacourt, national columnist for the Toronto Star. Uh, good to see you all, gang. Uh, happy Friday. Um, we're going to talk about Brian Mulroney in just a second. But, Paul, I want to start with the, you know, the, the planned and unplanned political news of the week. The government had two big things they wanted to talk about this week. The Pharmacare deal with the NDP. Yep. And their online harms legislation, and then Winnipeg Lab leak, Arrive Can, all of these things sort of sideswiped it. Where do you think they are after a week where they hope to have a couple of good news stories to hang their hat on? I think in the best case scenario for the government, so much happened that it, people kind of got jammed up in their heads. Mm. And because mm. I know that certainly that's how I was as of dinner time yesterday <laughs> when suddenly uh, me too Brian Mulroney. <laughs> yeah. um, as he used to do so often in life, gave us other stuff to talk about. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, uh, I think the, um, the 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 federal public servant who was involved in a uh, arrangement that, that that netted uh, many many millions of dollars of federal contracts might be the story with the uh, strongest short term legs. And mm. uh, you note that I didn't say pharmacare. Uh, <laughs> and so um, if that turns out to be the case, then probably it was a net loss for the government as far as the week went. Yeah, I, I mean, Susan, not to do it too granular on that one, but to find out that a employee of the Department of National Defense was also a contractor that got millions and millions of dollars in contracts, while this person also ran for the People Party of Canada on an <laughs> anti-vaccine passport mandate and was working on the Arrive Can app is a mad lib I could not have concocted. <laughs> well, it's, should a, I have tried. it's a big tent, Dave. Yeah, it's a big tent. Sure is. So, Susan, <laughs> now, you know, what, what, what do you make of what happened in the tent this week here in Ottawa? Well, when you were rolling that tape of what had happened this week, I was really that was all yeah. this week. I know it, I got dehydrated watching it. Yeah. <laughs> it um, <laughs> You know, I, I, a couple of months ago, I interviewed the prime minister and I said to him, what do you, who do you call when times get tough? And he said, what do you mean when times get tough? We call that Monday. Mm. And this felt like a lot of Mondays in the same thing. They, they, again, we'll talk about Mulroney later, but I, I covered him and it, it was crisis to crisis, what Paul said. But it, it feels a lot this, this government has that sort of um, – that aura as well is that just when you start to do something else, mm -hmm. something else comes along. I don't know how that happened with the defense. I, how, who can explain that? And, and I don't know that they're going to have a good explanation for it. You know, they, mm -hmm. I, I, it's now become a sort of standard line in question period to say, well, as soon as we got wind of this, we went to the police. But you can't keep saying that. 
No, because uh, Kelly, they keep getting wind of things that needs to go to the <laughs> Auditor General or you know whoever, right, uh, to dig into. But you know, the, the, the Prime Minister talk, called Tough Days Mondays. They had a decent opening Monday, at least with the online harms legislation, which had an effective rollout. It, it seemed to have struck a balance that satisfied some of the critics. So that's building a bit as the week goes on. Uh, I mean, where do you think the government is uh, in a week that just had a, a, a punctuated by a series of big events? The slope was definitely downward for the week for the federal liberals. I think, you know, uh, the Online Harms Act, of course, uh, a lot of it addresses things that we really need to address, like uh, uh, online porn and, you know, uh, deep fakes and the like. But there has been major criticism in terms of there being a life sentence, say, for hate crimes and and who will be the judge of that, of course, is concerning. And, you know, the Pharmacare uh, deal, you know, is always uh, a good thing when you can announce something that uh, for many Canadians will be widely popular. You can you Mm -hmm. can battle Alberta on. But, you know, I think this uh, the Arrive Can app and the defense uh, department contractor slash employee, it's a really dangerous one for a government because it's one of those stories that people will tell their friend or their mm. neighbor. You know, it wouldn't pass a smell test in a small business. And here we have, you know, a government that supposedly is sophisticated and checks with its vendors on a number of fronts. Um, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a dangerous story because it, it's so extreme. It's so weird. Yeah. It also um, dangerously, I think, hurts programs for indigenous entrepreneurs and getting contracts with the, the federal government, which has been a main push of this government because it, it, it leads to questions about that program as well. Yeah, and, and Shachi, I don't know if, if people would believe that the liberals were messing around with procurement rules to help an anti-vaccine People's Party of Canada <laughs> candidate, oh which God. is the most puzzling thing here. But it, it becomes a competence question and an oversight question and a basic management of government question on a week when they roll out things like Pharmacare, and we learned apparently it's hard to give away contraceptives and insulin to some of the provinces. <laughs> is it the highs and the lows and the sighs and the woes? Like, I have whiplash listening to all of this, but in terms of, like... How the week went for this government, I'm going to say it was a wash. It wasn't nearly as as bad as you might think, in part because some of these items that that seem to bubble up out of nowhere, just because they happened doesn't mean that there is a stickiness in terms of what Canadians are paying attention to or latching onto or following closely. So online harms, that's that's a story whose ending is not yet written uh, and is going to have some legs. I think in some ways it reminds me a little bit of Bill C-51, the the anti-terror law uh, from the Harper era, where people protested it. They were so angry about it. But I remember when we polled a bit to Kelly's point and said, well, what do you think about this aspect and this aspect and this aspect? Mm. Uh, People were mostly okay with it. It was those those other outlying parts of the legislation overall that that caused the backlash. So I think that is one to watch. Arrive can you would feel like that is the most you know forehead slapping thing that could happen to the Trudeau government. But the truth of it is, if he didn't lose the room on the Jamaican vacation or on the Aga Khan's island or on We Charity or on SNC Lavalin, 
than funky procurement that doesn't directly enrich uh, the PM, the people closest to the PM, a member of cabinet, an MP specifically. Uh, it's it's not, you know, again, it's one of those, well, whose eye was on what ball, but it doesn't necessarily land at the feet of the prime minister or cabinet or this government. You know, Paul, what, what wasn't in that montage of the 500 things that happened this week was Saskatchewan flat out saying they're going to break federal law and not remit the carbon tax revenue to the federal government. That yes. they're just, they're going to stop collecting it and not set back an equivalent amount and you can come arrest us and take us to jail because this is about fairness. And it just seems that when you look at the automatic opposition to things coming from certain provincial capitals for various ideological reasons and then the scar tissue of government, I, I don't know if it's possible for this government to get a clean week right now. You know what I mean? Like when you, you, yeah. you have a, a good rollout for Herms and you, you save your confidence and supply agreement and everything is still sideswiping you. If I can throw one more story on the pile, sure. uh, a Quebec appeals court decision uh, yesterday yeah. Yeah. that uh, is sending Bill 21, the... the, the um, Secularism. Yeah, it's yeah. going straight to the Supreme Court. The federal governments have to decide how, whether and to what extent they want to intervene and that's going to be another, uh, another fun day at the office. Um, uh, Susan said something that's interesting. She said that, as incorrectly, that very often the response from the government is, as soon as we heard about this, uh, we called the police. Well, the problem is, the stories that are out this week about ArriveCan are based on documents that were tabled in the House of Commons in January mm. uh, that contain information that was available to the government for years before that. So actually, what, what, the, what the government means to say is, when you and I became aware of it, they called the police. Uh, or when our listeners and readers became aware of it, they called the police. That's also uh, highly characteristic of this government. Susan, the other thing we learned about this week was um, the reasoning and the explanation behind the firing of the two scientists from mm -hmm. the National Microbiology Lab. This was a, it was a drama that played out in Parliament across multiple conservative leaders in multiple election cycles uh, and finally got to the point where vastly unredacted documents were released. What do you make of the process it took to get there? Like, I, I know there was a lack of cooperation, let's say, in Parliament to deal with it early, but then there's also the criticism that there was stalling and an inability to take it seriously by the government. Yeah, uh, you know, some pieces of this story are still missing to me. Um, I, even, I, and I, I say that having not read all the documents, sure. full disclosure. But what's missing to me uh, in the events this week is the Chinese government reaction. Where is that? I, uh, um, I have something from the embassy. You keep going and I, I, I will give you, I will read it to you. I'm, Let me just find it. You know, a couple of years ago, I'm not sure that the federal government wanted to go anywhere near anything that would annoy China uh, because the two Michaels were there. And I yes. do think that that context, I wasn't hearing a lot about that this week, that, that the relationship with China has, you know, how Ottawa went from cold to hot. In, that's been the, the way of this government the, with China yeah. since it came to power. It wanted to be friends. Then it was enemies. Then it, it, it stole our Canadians, kept them hostage. What did the it's short and sweet. So it flew by so fast you probably missed it. It says, the allegation that China tried to steal the secrets of Canada is entirely groundless. We firmly oppose this. So but, there you go. Nothing to see here according to China. Yes, but uh, it was not, we're going to seize two of your Canadians. Right. Um, so, um, you know, the federal government, it, unfortunately, when you are in government, the answer is often is complicated or, you know. And I, I do think this is trying to explain how this particular episode was handled over the course of years where the, the relationship with China was on an, a roller coaster and the two Michaels were at the top of 
mm-hmm. consideration. Uh, that's the part. That's the part I'm not seeing yet and not understanding. But, you know, Kelly, uh, Susan's point that uh, very often the answer when you're in government is that it's complicated and it's a, it seems like a political time when people don't want to hear that. They want simple, direct answers on complex issues. And, and in some ways, uh, you, while complexity is a facet of being in government, you do need to be able to distill things and explain it. And this is something that has been a struggle, uh, certainly that we've seen on a few issues this week. Yeah, I think sometimes when it's uh, you, it's so complicated you can't explain it, there's something uh, being hidden or there or not quite uh, easily explainable. And I think that's the issue, too, even thinking back to the lab leak concern, um, you know, the, the federal liberals talking about how it was a different period five years ago when um, a lot of these uh, actions might have played out. That is true, but there is, you know... There is still, I think, a desire by Canadians to see a foreign policy that grows up that's not only about the two Michaels, that's about trade wars, that's about uh, election interference, and is about, you know, the federal liberals saying that Polyev is playing politics with this issue right now when uh, Canadians should be united on this issue. I think that's a bit rich from a Liberal Party that when these uh, concerns were first brought up two years ago... uh, accuse the uh, conservatives of fomenting anti-Asian sentiment. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think there's, been, there's been a lot of evolution in a lot of ways, but I think what Canadians do want and what is simple is a more grown-up foreign policy, and definitely when we're talking about uh, procurement and uh, government processes for contracts and the like, they, they want a more grown-up government as well. Yeah, and Shachi, just as a final point on this, what, what struck me on, on the Winnipeg uh, lab leak and the document release, the, the uh, defense the Liberals gave yesterday uh, and throughout this week was that mm. we tried to send this to NSI COP, the Conservatives wouldn't agree with it, and then the Conservatives boycotted NSI COP, and they were sort of complaining about the lack of respect the opposition had for this important committee of parliamentarians appointed to deal with national security. But a year ago, during the height of the foreign interference frenzy here in Ottawa, we learned that NSI COP have been recommending a bunch of things to this government that this government completely ignored and didn't act upon, yeah. right? So we have these yeah. institutions that are supposed to exist, and, and in a lot of directions, they're not working as well as they should. It, it, it's, it's on important issues like this, it's a problem. You know, the Michaels have been home for, what, the better, more than two years now, mm-hmm. the better part of two years, and there's been plenty of time for, for reckoning uh, across, you know, a- across government, across opposition. There is a desire from Canadians to better understand how well Canada is prepared to deal with attempts of uh, interference, and, and you've seen the calls from that, not only dealing with what Beijing may or may not be trying to do, but other countries as well. Uh, and and then Canadians have had to reconcile the fact that they want to know more, that they that they are expressing when we ask them the question in polling, that they are, they're concerned about it, they think there's more to the story, they feel like they're not hearing everything, they are conflicted over whether or not they should hear everything because of some things you can't bring out in, in public. But at the same time, uh, all this does is it sort of bubbles back up something that I think has sort of been latent or sleeping in the backs of a lot of Canadians' heads while they try to deal with everything else that we've just talked about in the last few minutes, going, oh yeah, that, that's a thing too. And the last thing I remember about that was I didn't like the way the government was handling it. And aha, I'm not so sure I, I, I like the way the government's handled this one for all of the reasons David and the rest of us have just laid out. 
thank you all. Shachi Kuro, Kelly Kreiderman, Paul Wells, Susan Delacour. Thanks, gang. Appreciate it. The federal government is extending a program that funds hundreds of local journalists. The Minister of Heritage announced nearly $60 million in new funding today to the Local Journalism Initiative for the next three years. Ottawa says the fund helps newsrooms hire and maintain more than 400 jobs for journalists in the past year. The announcement comes as the news industry grapples with mass layoffs and declining revenues. Pascal Saint-Ange is the Minister of Canadian Heritage and she joins me now. Minister, thanks for coming in. My pleasure. You've renewed the uh, Local Journalism Initiative Fund. Um, it, it's another example, though, where public money is required for journalism to function in this, in this country. I mean, what does it say about the state of this profession and this industry that it doesn't seem to work without the state getting directly involved? Well, first of all, this program has proved very efficient because uh, we've seen local communities that were able to rehire journalists uh, that have lost their jobs in the past decade. Uh, so this is good news, actually, for uh, local information and for, you know, uh, the, the, the information that the, the population needs to rely on uh, when it comes to what's happening in their community. So that's good. But you're right. I mean, what we're seeing and what we've been seeing in the past decade is that there's less and less profit to make off of news, which means that the, the private sector is pulling out of news. Um, I've always seen the government's intervention in supporting news uh, sector as uh, something that we should be doing, but, you know, as temporarily as possible, Mm. uh, because there is a a deep transformation of the sector right now. Uh, For example, what we're seeing in Quebec is that as the private sector has pulled out of the newspaper industry, uh, a lot of those newspapers have uh, transformed themselves into non-for-profit organizations. Right. Um, and and it's, a, it's a complicated transformation, uh, but the government support has allowed some of those newspapers to actually survive. Um, but, you know, we're working also on, on broader policies to try to uh, even... The, the news sector and the advertising markets, uh, because we know that a lot of the private revenues has moved from the news industry to platforms like Google and Facebook. So right. doing both things, uh, you know, first of all, making sure that uh, we don't lose all of our news outlets at the same time. We've seen hundreds of them close, thousands of journalists lose their jobs, but, you know, we still need to rely, to rely on news um, in our democracy. So making sure that we keep uh, journalism alive, and at the same time, changing policies to even the market. There's a couple of words you said that you talked about temporary, but it doesn't seem like this is going to be yeah. temporary. There's now the tax credit, you know, for, yeah. for journalism jobs. There is the the money that's coming from Google and not Meta, which yeah. which, which which is an issue. But Google but, is private money. It's yeah, not no, government no, I, money. I understand, but yeah. it, it's it's a redirection at the result of government policy. Of course, right? so, of course. Right. So and so then we have initiatives like like the local journalism initiative. It seems like these will inevitably become structural and become permanent in a way because there's nothing obvious to sort of fill that gap and mm-hmm. this is what the sector has come to rely on. So can it really be temporary? Well, that's that's the hope I have, right. uh, giving a chance to uh, the, the news industry to you know, reinvent themselves and, and transform their business model based a whole lot more on public interest and in sole profit. This is why I have a lot of hope in the non-for-profit sector, uh, because I think that it helps uh, the, the news outlets to reconnect with their community and, and really refocus on public interest. Um, and also, 
you know, there's still transformation happening in, in public policies that will, I think, eventually even even more um, the, the advertising market and make sure that the, there's new streams of revenue in the sector. For example, uh, yes, there's the Google deal and the $100 million uh, will start flowing to the new sectors in the next few months. Uh, this is extremely important. Uh, as for Meta, there's still some decisions uh, that will need to be taken, both by the. CRTC. They're not coming back. I, I mean, they're not going to allow news on their platform and pay into this deal. They they just don't want that exposure, right? Yeah. Well, right now that's the decision, the business decision that they made. Mm-hmm. But there's two things that uh, Meta needs to look out for. The first thing is the Competition Bureau because there has been complaints uh, because of their decision. So uh, there's should be investigations. They're independent, so I'm going to let them do their jobs. But there is uh, an incoming decision on that side. And on the other, the CRTC will have to uh, investigate and decide if uh, the Online News Act applies to Meta, even though they are pulling out of the news sector. Because what they're doing is they're showing that they're actually controlling Mm -hmm. and editing what Canadians are allowed to see. Um, So uh, two very important decisions. You, you mentioned uh, the importance of, of journalism and, and local media and national media in democracy. You've seen the criticism, though, that the money we get as a public broadcaster here at the CBC from the government, people say that taints our, our editorial positions and taints our coverage. And that is a criticism of all journalism now as they rely on the tax credits, the direct transfers and the funding. How do you push back against that? I, I mean, that this is a criticism that if you become dependent on a government for your survival, it inevitably taints your opinion and makes you bias. Well, all the programs that we've conceived uh, to help journalism has always been uh, done in, a, in, in, you know, w- with the idea that we needed to keep an arm's length from any news organization. And it's been the case with CBC Radio Canada forever since its creation. Uh, now, on the fiscal measure of the ta- tax credit, uh, it's actually uh, a fiscal measure. So there's no subjective decisions on uh, who should get it or not. If you meet the criteria, you're allowed to have that tax deduction. Do you think deduction. the country buys that, though? Do you think, or, do you think Canadians buy that when, when political opponents of this raise it and say you're, you're buying the journalists by giving them the money? And, you know, well, that resonates with some people. Yeah, but, uh, you know, I also have questions about these politicians that are attacking journalism and the independence of journalism uh, when we know that this is an essential part of democracy, when it's journalists that actually holds politicians to account. And I'm sorry, but if we are uh, reading news and if we are looking at the the news uh, on the radio or on the television, the tough questions are being asked to the politicians, whether it's the Liberals, the NDP, the Bloc or any others. Uh, so uh, I disagree with that, and I totally disagree with the approach of some politicians to bully and attack journalists uh, to get their point across. And I, you know, journalists are supposed to respect uh, the highest standards in terms of uh, the professional code of ethics. Uh, if the public doesn't think that the uh, journalists have done their jobs properly, they can always file complaints. Mm. Uh, so you know, there is an accountability uh, when it comes to journalism. Um, but I am uh, also very aware that some people are using the fact that the government is, you know, trying to save democracy and trying to save journalism uh, by putting some, some programs in place. Uh, but I think, you know, it would be worse for the country if we lost most of our news outlets.
You, you mentioned uh, accountability uh, to journalistic ethics. That's something the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, as a public broadcaster in Radio Canada, has yeah. to do. They also have to be accountable to the taxpayer for the money yeah. that these organizations And get. there's an ombudsman at uh, CBC Radio Canada we're, that uh, receives complaints. We're very aware of that. Um, You've mentioned you want to do a review of the CBC's mandate and its funding structure. Is this merely a review you're contemplating of how the CBC is funded and how it gets its money? Or are you contemplating a review of what the public broadcaster does? Because when you talk to people who work here, uh, and I've been here a quarter of a century now, it it feels like with Mm -hmm. what's available, too many things, too many places, in too many ways. Does Does the CBC need to be refocused? Like, What are you contemplating for the CBC in this review? Well, I think uh, that uh, we have to address three different pillars. And you've mentioned uh, the financial structure of CBC Radio Canada, and this should be tightly linked with the governance and the transparency and the accountability aspect of CBC Radio Canada. So that's one thing. But you've mentioned, you know, what should the CBC Radio Canada be doing in the yeah, 21st its century? Exactly, yeah. its purpose. And yes, I think that there's ways to address that. Uh, and there's ways to make sure that the public broadcaster is different from the private sector. Uh, make sure also that the CBC Radio Canada is the public space uh, that the Canadian population deserves. Uh, and that it, it's really at service to the Canadian population. So part of it is related to the governance piece and how CBC Radio Canada interacts with the Canadian population. Um, and a lot of it comes also from its financial structure and how we can make it uh, you know, more predictable and sustainable and make sure that uh, uh, CBC Radio Canada has what it needs uh, for the next decades. So what about what it needs for the next year? Because uh, the the president has has told the workforce to brace for a workforce reduction of up to 10% because Mm -hmm. of a structural deficit and being asked to identify a little over 3% in savings from Treasury Board. The public accounts came out this week. There's actually an increase in money for the CBC for the fiscal year ahead. Is CBC going to have to make that 3% cut? Well, uh, you know, I said right from the beginning when uh, those announcements uh, were made to the CBC Radio Canada's employees that the, the decision about the 3.3% cuts um, or, you know, expenses reallocations yeah. uh, hadn't been made yet for the CBC Radio Canada. So it's an exercise that, that we've been through. It was really important to do because we want to make sure that uh, all the programs that the government has in place, uh, that every penny is used properly for uh, and and as efficient as possible, um, but you know the the the, the, uh, the goal was never to uh, you know put in danger an organization like CBC Radio Canada. That since uh, this government came into power in 2015, uh, we've reintroduced uh, some some uh, funding that uh, was cut by the previous government, the, the Conservatives. Uh, so of course, you know, we, we don't want to, to endanger uh, the, the mission and the mandate that CBC Radio Canada. Uh, needs to deliver to the Canadian population, especially when it comes to the uh, official languages. Um, so, no, uh, CBC will not have to do the 3.3% cuts. Okay, so you find that in other places in, in government. That's just as part of the cost saving across government, CBC is not going to have to contribute to that directly. It exactly. Is. It's a whole of a government uh, right. exercise. So all of us, all of us ministers had to do that uh, exercise of looking at our departments and seeing what programs could be uh, remodeled and, and rebuilt or changed or cut completely because uh, they are no longer uh, needed or efficient. Uh, but in the case of CBC Radio Canada, of course, you know, it's still as relevant as it is today. And we know that uh, CBC Radio Canada, like all other uh, broadcasters, are facing financial difficulties right now. Um, and so I think 
that uh, the Treasury Board and, and my colleague uh, Anita Anand made the right decision when it comes to the public broadcaster. Okay, so just as a final point, because uh, we're tight on time, but the, the, the mandate review that you've talked about, I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's a big picture, uh, top, top to bottom. Look, what's the timeline for that? Are we going to see that in 2024? Is that a 2025 thing? When, when will we have a sense of what the future of the CBC would look like from you? Well, I'm going to put a little bit of pressure on myself, but I'm hoping that I can come back uh, to the Canadian population uh, next fall with uh, a clearer proposal about what the CBC Radio Canada could look like uh, for the coming years, so that we have a, a proper coast to coast to coast discussion about the future of our public broadcaster. But the good good news is, uh, every surveys that we've looked at. Uh, tells us that 75% of the Canadian population still want a public broadcaster. They just want it to be better than what it is today. So that's good news, and that's a lot that we can build on. Um, so there's a lot of work on my plate, but I hope that uh, next fall I can uh, I can propose something uh, concrete. Fall 2024, this yeah. year, you mean? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Pascal Sainanch, Minister of Heritage, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thousands of people gathered today for Alexei Navalny's funeral in Moscow. Mourners chanted as the Russian opposition leader's body was carried from the church to a nearby cemetery. Police had the area surrounded after the Kremlin warned against any unauthorized gatherings today. Navalny died two weeks ago while detained in an Arctic penal colony. The cause of his death is still unknown, but many Western leaders blame Russian President Vladimir Putin. Bill Browder is the head of the Global Magnitsky Justice Campaign. He's also CEO of Hermitage Capital, and he joins me now from New York City. Bill Browder, it's good to speak with you today. Thank you, sir. Good to be here. We we saw fairly significant crowds today at at Navalny's funeral, and and you wrote on X that the killing of Navalny will haunt Putin until the end of his days. What do you think the consequences of this will be? Well, Navalny, Alexei Navalny, um, has become a martyr for freedom, for democracy, and for a normal Russia. This is what people had hoped for, and um, and Putin was scared of that. Um, but uh, Navalny, it will it, it, Navalny's uh, his image, his symbolism is just as strong in death as it was in life. Your uh, lawyer and friend Sergei Magnitsky was imprisoned and died in 2009, and you called for the creation of Magnitsky Acts, which has led to sanctioning and, and travel bans uh, around the world. You're now calling for a Navalny Act. What are you looking for there? Well, we're looking for something that will seriously hurt Vladimir Putin for committing this murder. And what could seriously hurt Vladimir Putin at this point is that there's $300 billion of Russian government central bank reserves that were frozen one week into the war. And what would really hurt Putin is if the West, the EU, the UK, US, Canada, Australia, and others confiscated that money, took that money away from Vladimir Putin gave it to Ukraine for their defense and reconstruction, and said to Vladimir Putin, this is the Navalny Act for killing Alexei Navalny. It just cost you $300 billion. We've heard this discussed publicly. I've had conversations with this about Canadian officials who who support the idea intellectually, though the amount of Russian assets available to be seized in Canada is quite low. But there is a pushback against it and a disagreement amongst the G7 and Western leaders because of the precedent it would set, that that other nations might start seizing other countries' assets and the knock-on effect of that. What do you say to leaders who are reluctant to do this for, for those specific reasons? Well, the precedent that's being set is that if a country does a terrible invasion 
un, unwarranted, aggressive invasion, killing, killing the civilians and destroying the infrastructure of a neighboring country, um, then that country's assets will be confiscated. That's a good precedent. That's not a bad precedent. That's a precedent that China should pay attention to and countries in the Middle East should pay attention to. And the fear that somehow um, that it's not going to be safe to put your money in the U.S. or the EU or the U.K. Um, is ill-founded because what's going to happen is all of these countries together are going to do this. Mm. And, um, and people who have money have nowhere else to put it. You can't keep your money in Iranian reals or Argentine pesos because those are uh, basically Mickey Mouse currencies. The major reserve currencies of the world are, are the dollar, the euro, the Canadian dollar, the pound. And if all countries in these um, civilized uh, uh, countries were to do this, then, then you end up in a situation where, where people have to keep their money and continue to keep their money in these countries. It's easy to see how $300 billion would help Ukraine. Um, how would seizing assets that are already frozen and unavailable to Russia affect Russia? Is it simply by moving it to the other side of the ledger and giving it to President Zelensky and his country for their defense and, and reconstruction? Well, what I can tell you about Vladimir Putin is that he is um, a man who doesn't value human life at all. He's ready to send in hundreds of thousands of soldiers to their deaths um, without even blinking an eye. But he's a guy who values money um, infinitely. Mm. And so for, for us to confiscate that money is, is really two fingers in the eye for Vladimir Putin. I wonder, sir, your thoughts on where the death of uh, Mr. Navalny leaves the opposition movement in Russia right now. Vladimir Karamurza, he's uh, one of the opposition leaders sentenced to 25 years. He's refusing to give up, urging opposition supporters to, to continue the fight of what him and people like Mr. Navalny w were working for. What do you think might happen to Mr. Karamurza? Do you think there is a figure to fill that space left by Mr. Navalny's uh, death? Well, Vladimir Karamurza is the most important political prisoner in Russia. We know that from a variety of different standpoints, but the most importantly is that they've given him the longest sentence of any political prisoner in Russia. They've sentenced him to 25 years in prison. Now, Vladimir Karamorza is a man who has really been very articulate and vocal and charismatic about his call for freedom, for democracy, for free speech, and for normal relations with the rest of the world. And so we need him to stay alive. We, we can't afford another murder. And so... Uh, now that we've lost Alexei Navalny, who is the voice for all those things, we have to do everything possible in the West to protect and save the life of Vladimir Karamorza. And uh, he's a Canadian, honorary Canadian citizen, and I, I hope that the Canadian government will uh, use whatever power they have to work with allies to free Vladimir Karamorza so he doesn't die as well. This is the challenge, though, of dealing with a country like Russia under a leader like Putin right now, is uh, people get sent to jail for political reasons, and they often don't make it out, and they don't make it out alive. And I just wonder, we saw uh, more than 100 people, and, and counting, arrested today uh, for showing up uh, to, to mourn uh, the death of Mr. Navalny. Uh, what do you think this says about where Mr. Putin is, where Vladimir Putin is, and cracking down on dissent uh, inside his country at this stage of the war? Well, at this stage, um, Putin has kind of given up on winning the hearts and minds of the Russians. Mm. It's, it's no longer uh, a possibility for him with all these dead soldiers, with the economy in a, in a total state of disarray, with the repressions um, that are taking place every day in Russia. And so all he can do now is crack down to become a total totalitarian dictator. 
And that's what he's doing. And that's, you know, the people didn't show up to have riots uh, for Alexei Navalny. They, they showed up to mourn Alexei Navalny. And 100 of them were arrested. <clears throat> 400 were arrested on the day after he was killed um, laying flowers. Um, Putin is showing himself to be absolutely terrified of his own people. And this is not a sign of strength. This is a sign of immense weakness. And it shows that, that um, any significant crack in the regime, any significant public uprising could spin out of control for him, which is why he's so scared. You mentioned the state of the economy as, as one of his challenges. In the, the wake of Mr. Navalny's death, we saw the U.S., the U.K., the EU, and others impose new sanctions on Russia, targeting its war machine. Do you see those having an impact at this stage? It seems to me if these sanctions were truly powerful, they would have been imposed a long time ago. I mean, what is the value of these at this stage? Will they make a difference? Well, the sanctions are making a big difference. So we've just talked about the central bank reserves, which are frozen, mm -hmm. and that's $300 billion. Um, where There's a huge amount of oligarch money that's frozen, hundreds and hundreds of billion. Um, the, the Russian companies and Russian government has no longer access to borrow money on the international capital markets, which is very significant. There's huge bans on imports. Um, the Russian uh, people can't travel outside of Russia unless they go to Dubai or, or other places like that. Um, planes are literally doing emergency landings because they've run out of spare parts. And so things are not going well for the Russians. And to say the sanctions aren't working uh, is not correct. Well, to say that sanctions haven't stopped the war is correct. Mm -hmm. So what do we do to we completely um, obliterate Putin's ability to conduct this war? Well, there's one final elephant in the room, which is that Russia continues to sell oil to the, to the international oil markets and gets hundreds of billions of dollars a year from doing so and then spends those hundreds of billions of dollars a year on their war economy, buying missiles and ammunition from North Korea and drones from Iran and paying um, for factories to make more tanks in Russia. And, um, and so if we want to finish this off, um, stop the war, um, we need to figure out a way so Putin doesn't get that money. And that, that's a, bit, a tough one because Russia is such an important oil supplier. Um, they supply 10% of the world's oil. To stop them supplying that oil would push up the price of oil. We're in a world of yeah, inflation and, and uh, cost of living problems. And so that's the, big, that's the big quandary is how do you stop Russia from getting that money? Um, and perhaps the answer is we, we get our, all of our allies and ourselves, the U.S. and Canada, to produce more oil, get the Saudis to produce more oil, and then cut Russia off completely and finally so they don't have the money to continue this war. But that's a hard decision, and that has, that's been the one that hasn't been taken yet. Bill Browder, uh, I want to thank you for your time. Thanks for joining us today, sir. Thank you. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.